Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing actually a lot better than I was a few minutes ago. Um, Finley had surgery today, and I have been kind of a wreck most of the day, so if this episode is edited poorly, that's part of the reason. The other part of it is I'm just not that great at it. But a few minutes ago, we finally heard back from his surgeon, and the surgery was a success, which is great. Um, I'm super relieved. They did not mention whether his leg would heal in a way that would allow him to pitch 100 mile per hour fastballs for a major league baseball team. But I think it's probably safe to assume that it will. I think they would have mentioned it otherwise. So, you know, that's exciting. And if any major league scouts are out there listening, just know that we would prefer he went to an American League team because I hate to say it, but his batting is not great and he would probably benefit from having a designated hitter. And also, he will not play for the Yankees or the Astros because he's a good boy. Anyway, I'm excited to be back talking to you guys after a week off. And so, without any further ado... Oh, I probably should have mentioned, in case you're a new listener, uh, Finley is a dog. I probably should have mentioned that before. Best dog in the world. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Mark Paglia. The brain survives Brother Blood's defeat, escaping his lair in one cerebral piece. To learn of this francophone's next plan criminel, Monsieur Hub gives us un synopsis. Thanks, Mark, both for the rhyme and for the opportunity to demonstrate my flawless French accent, which, if you're lucky, you might hear more of later. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 44, June 1988. The Cuckoo Conspiracy. Written by Jean-Marc Lafissier and Randy Lafissier, with plot consultation and additional dialogue by Marv Wolfman, drawed by Michael Collins, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Kiesel. Teen Titan Roll Call! Nightwing! Starfire! Wonder Girl, Raven, Jericho, Cyborg, Beast Boy, and Danny fucking Chase. Previously in the New Teen Titans. An objectively brief but seemingly interminable amount of comic book time ago, our heroes ran afoul of a precocious young telekinetic super spy named Danny Chase. Danny's parents, who were also super spies, had been kidnapped by Godiva, a fame-obsessed psychopathic proto-reality star slash international assassin. Godiva used a combination of torture and mind control powers to extract classified information from the Elder Chases, then went on to use that information to steal a spaceship or something. Oh no! 
With Danny's help, the Titans manage to rescue the kidnapped spies and foil Godiva's plans. But the flamboyant femme fatale managed to momentarily mesmerize Cyborg and escape capture. The Titans were so impressed with Danny's abilities that they asked the freckle-faced 14-year-old to join the team as a late series cast addition. Because those always work out so well. Since joining the team, Danny revealed that in addition to being an international super spy and the world's most powerful telekinetic, he also possessed art skills, a photographic memory, and perhaps most impressively, the ability to annoy me so much that I occasionally root for Beast Boy. Meanwhile, Godiva fled to a semi-secret base in Scotland where she met with an apparently famous thespian named Sir Alex Richmond, and employed him to serve as her acting instructor. Gadzooks! How will Godiva react to a regiment of mask work and movement classes? After facing off with Godiva on five different continents in their first encounter, what exotic locale will the Titans journey to in this issue? And how will Danny Chase react to the death of a respected colleague? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... By murdering her acting instructor, which, relatable, North Dakota, and by telling everyone to cheer up and pay attention to what a good job he just did. Somewhere in the Swiss Alps, a helicopter is chasing an anonymous skier down a mountain. After making a few evasive maneuvers, the skier in question pivots and shoots down the helicopter with a small handgun. Then he makes a terrible almost joke about it. Oh, so I guess he must be a spy. Speaking of spies, Mr. and Mrs. Chase swing by the Titan Tower to see how their precocious son Danny is fitting in with his new pals. After a few minutes of chit-chat, Mr. Chase is like, Well, that's about as much parenting as I can stomach in a single setting. See you on Easter, kid. Hmm. This is the June issue of this comic, so unless the DCU version of Jesus hit the snooze button a few more times than his Earth Prime counterpart, Easter isn't for almost a year. So I guess the Chases are about as fond of Danny as I am. Before his parents take off, Danny is like, Hey, Dad, can I introduce the Titans to Grandpa? Mr. Chase is like, Do I have to come? Danny is like, No. Mr. Chase is like, Then sure, go for it. Just make sure you get government clearance first. Bye! Cats in the cradle and all that. See ya! The Titans decide they're keen to meet Grandpa Chase for some reason so they all get clearance from the spy agency the Chases work for, hop in a minivan, and embark on a road trip to the North Dakota facility for retired secret agents that Franklin Chase calls home. A short while after crossing the border into the Cornhusker State, our heroes pull into an impressive, high-tech, fancy-pants compound. They're greeted by Franklin, a handsome older gentleman who bears a striking resemblance to a certain Scottish actor who once starred in Zardoz. But that's probably just a coincidence. Despite previously having been described as a nuclear physicist, Franklin apparently had an extensive second career as a spy. Good for him. Who says there are no second acts in American lives? I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald for one, but he was probably drunk when he said that. You know, on account of him being F. Scott Fitzgerald and all. 
Anyway, while Frank and the Titans are getting to know one another, over in London, a spy who is a different guy than the first spy who was skiing and blew up a helicopter, but looks an awful lot like that guy, is meeting with a French spy who doesn't look like the other two spies because he has a mustache. The non-mustache spy introduces himself as Catalyst. The mustache spy asks Catalyst if he has the money, and Catalyst is like, yup, and hands mustache spy a briefcase full of cash. Once he gets the cash, the mustache spy is like, okay, Catalyst, the helicopter blowing up spy you're looking for goes by the code name Cuckoo, like the title of this issue. He is headed to North Dakota to be briefed at a special retirement home for spies there. Here are all of the security codes to that facility. Please do not tell anyone I gave them to you or I could be in big trouble. Catalyst is like, oh, you won't have anything to worry about ever again. Mustache Spy is like, oh, that is good news. Catalyst is like, all your troubles are about to be over. Permanently. Mustache Spy is like, Again, this is great news for me! I do not know why you are delivering such glad tidings in such an ominous tone, but as worries and troubles are amongst my least favorite things, I am happy to hear that they will no longer be a concern. Thank you so much, Monsieur Cato. This last bit is because Catalyst murders the mustache spy by palming his face. So I guess either he knows some special kung fu, or else his hand just smells really bad. Anyway, once mustache spy is dead, Catalyst hops in his car. As he drives away, a shadowy figure in the back seat is like, Good job with the murder. Catalyst is like, Thanks. The next day in Scotland, Godiva is hanging around in her pagoda-looking mansion. She has the day off from acting lessons because she murdered her teacher by stuffing him full of cheese and hanging him on a hook in a ham factory. So I guess she probably gets an incomplete for the semester. The unconventional assassin gloats to herself about what a good psychopath she is, but her rant is interrupted by the arrival of Catalyst, who wants to hire her to do a murder. Godiva asks for payment in advance, but Catalyst is like, No dice. Half now, the rest once the job is done. Godiva starts to throw a little tantrum, but then a shadowy figure emerges from the back of Catalyst's car and tells her to knock it off. When she sees who it is, Godiva immediately sanes up and strikes a deferential tone. Just who is this nefarious figure who is capable of striking such fear into the hitherto blithely callous Godiva? The shadowy man steps into the light and finally reveals himself to be none other than Dr. Cornelius. Wait, who? Dr. Cornelius is an old bald scientist guy who I think is a minor Blue Beetle villain? Oh, uh, okay. Dr. Cornelius tells Godiva to go to North Dakota kill the spy known as Cuckoo, and retrieve whatever information it is he stole in Switzerland before the helicopter started chasing him. Godiva's like, no problem. Speaking of North Dakota, the Titans are hanging out there with Franklin and the rest of the retired spies when their old pal, the delightfully named King Faraday, shows up. 
Hooray! King Faraday is the gruff, chain-smoking, plain-spoken head of a fictional government agency called the CBI, which is like a hybrid of the FBI and the CIA. He's also the Titan's government liaison and the Chase's boss. Faraday introduces the gang to his British counterpart, Sir Cyril Sheldrake, Earl of Wardenshire. If Cyril's name sounds familiar, it's because he and his dad used to fight crime as Knight and Squire, English knockoffs of Batman and Robin. Sorry, Sir Cyril. I like my Batman knockoffs to gain the strength of two strong men at night. And I don't like those ones very much either. Cyril tells the gang that there's a spy named Cuckoo that he'd like them to protect. He also tells them that most of Europe thinks they fucked up the whole Godiva thing pretty bad last time they fought, and a lot of people want to ban superheroes from Europe because of that. Not him, mind you, but a lot of people. Seems kind of rude to bring that up, but okay. At this point, Cuckoo steps out and introduces himself. He is glib and charming. Or at least he has a British accent. As an American, I sometimes can't tell the difference between those things. The Titans and Cuckoo meet with a hotshit science lady named Davina Dix, who seems like she is a known quantity as a character, but I'm pretty sure this is her first and only appearance. She is a lady, so Beast Boy is a gross creep to her. Damn it, Beast Boy! Dix holds up what looks like a Roomba and is like, This device holds all of the information that Cuckoo stole from the bad guys. We're giving it to you guys to guard. Also, we didn't make any copies of it for narrative reasons. Good luck! Nightwing stuffs the Roomba in his pocket, and they all file out of the science lecture room. All the retired secret agents have been evacuated out of the old spy's home because Faraday thinks bad guys are coming to kill Cuckoo. But during the evac, Franklin Chase must have hid behind a couch or something, and now he wants to help out. He surreptitiously yoinks Danny away from the rest of the gang, and the two chases sneak off into the woods. Meanwhile, Godiva and her forces covertly approach the compound. They sail up to a perimeter outpost in a boat and fake a distress call. When the security guard attempts to rescue the endangered sailors, Godiva ambushes them and uses her mind control to subjugate the would-be Good Samaritans. Pretty clever. I gotta say, if I was guarding a facility in North Dakota, the last thing I would expect would be a naval assault. You know, on account of the nearest ocean being a couple thousand miles away. Anyway, Godiva and her newly brainwashed pals storm the facility and murder a bunch of people. Godiva takes over the retirement home's security system using the secret codes Catalyst got from the mustache spy. Then she calls in a bunch of reinforcements and deploys them to hunt down the Titans and Cuckoo. To aid her minions, she also sends out a bunch of high-tech robot dogs that were lying around the facility. I guess these robo-pooches must be pretty top-notch because they more or less kick the shit out of the Titans in a matter of minutes. Raven uses her nonsense powers to teleport herself, Wonder Girl, Jericho, and Cuckoo to what she assumes will be the relative safety of a residential quarters away from the heat of battle. But you know that expression about what happens when you assume... That's right. Godiva watches you on security monitors and fills the room you teleported into with knockout gas. That adage proves to be strangely prescient in this case, because that is exactly what happens. Cyborg, Beast Boy, Starfire, and Nightwing fare slightly better, but before long the cyberhounds incapacitate them as well. From the bushes nearby, 
Franklin and Danny Chase watch the battle unfold. Frank is like, These robot dogs are pretty good, huh? I designed them, you know. You don't say. So in addition to being a groundbreaking nuclear physicist and an international super spy, you're also a brilliant computer programmer and an electrical engineer? Yup. He's a chase, all right. Godiva has her unconscious captives dragged into the science center and ties them up with whatever superpower negating bullshit the government left lying around. She snakes the magic data Roomba off of Nightwing and is about to shoot Cuckoo in the head to complete her mission, but before she gets the chance, Danny fucking Chase and his grandpa Franklin bust through the sewer grate and free the captives. Hooray! I guess. Raven uses her empath powers to calm down a bunch of Godiva's minions to the point that they fall asleep, and Franklin makes his way to the control panel and turns off the robo-dogs. Godiva isn't too thrilled about this development, but all things considered, she takes it pretty well. The fashion-forward felon quickly decides to cut her losses. She straps on a jetpack, mesmerizes Cuckoo, throws him over her shoulder, and takes to the skies. When Wonder Girl and Starfire give chase, she drops the stupefied super spy and allows him to plummet to the ground. Cuckoo falls to his death on the concrete below. Dang. Donna and Coriander are horrified and redouble their efforts to apprehend Godiva, but the murderous mercenary pushes a button on a remote control and blows up the part of the compound where the rest of the Titans were hanging out. Oh no! The airborne Titans hurry to check on their landbound counterparts and are relieved to find that they all made it out of the building just in time. The gang is pretty bummed out that they failed their mission to protect Cuckoo and allowed his murderer to escape, but Danny's like, Hey, cheer up, everybody. Before she got away, I used my telekinesis, or TK as I call it, to yoink the Roomba off of Godiva. So stop being sad the man we all knew and liked just got murdered right in front of us and start praising me. I'm Danny fucking Chase. The Titans do as Danny suggests. Jesus, what the fuck is wrong with that kid? The next day, our heroes reconvene with Sir Cyril and King Faraday at the airport in Fargo. The two secret agents congratulate the costumed heroes on doing a great job of successfully completing the least important third of the mission they were tasked with. Cyril tells the Titans that their performance will certainly placate the European spy community, which had previously thought ill of them. Given the Earl's dry British wit, I don't think the Titans can tell whether he's being sarcastic or not. Frankly, neither can I. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure he has that much wit, dry or otherwise. It's that accent again. After bidding a fond farewell to Franklin Chase, the Titans pile into their T-Jet and head back to New York. The end. Man, can't believe the gang left in such a hurry. Didn't even stick around to see many of North Dakota's famous landmarks, like the childhood homes of such North Dakota celebrities as Lawrence Welk, or the uh, cartoon bubble bath mascot, Mr. Bubble, or my friend Kevin, who works at the library. I bet Kevin's mom would have made them some sandwiches or something. Missed opportunity, guys. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you? 
I'm doing okay. It's weird. Got to remember how this stuff goes again. It's been a couple of weeks since we've recorded one of these. Yeah, I know. It feels like much longer, actually. I know. So a couple of weeks ago, you took some time off to sullenly nurse a cup of coffee to celebrate your birthday. Yep. And then during that week, I recorded a show with Megan Bob. And then last week, to celebrate Lisa's birthday, uh, we were out camping, so we didn't end up recording a show. Uh, I haven't listened to the show that you put out that week without me, but I'm sure it's great. I, I'm really looking forward to it. I think you're going to be impressed at the <laughs> production value. I'm sure whatever it is, it'll be great. Me too. Looking forward to it. But yeah, it was nice. We, we were out camping and away from all of the technologies, which was pretty cool for a change of pace. Mm. We drove down the Oregon coast and we did some camping out in the Redwoods and then we drove back along the Oregon coast and we were on the lookout for a novelty t-shirt for Lisa that said something along the lines of, I'm crabby with a picture of a crab. Oh, sure. That seems like that'd be fun. Mm -hmm. There is a surprising dearth of benign pun t-shirts. Like, somewhere in the past few years, every t-shirt has gotten needlessly aggressive in its novelty. Hmm. Like what? Like, I saw Bigfoot and he sucked my dick or shit like that. That's not true. It's not that far off. There was a t-shirt that was like something along the lines of, I, it has a picture of an octopus. I was like, oh, I like octopuses. It's like, I wish I was an octopus so I could punch you in the face six times while I chug a beer. It needs two t tentacles to chug a beer? Well, I mean, if it's going to shotgun it. Oh. I'm assuming that's how an octopus chugs a beer. It might have just been like, so I could slap you in the face eight times, but it was just like, where is all of this aggression coming from? Novelty family t-shirt stand. Man, I feel like that's always been a market for that. When when I was in eighth grade, this kid named Joe, whose last name I'll redact, okay, had on like they were like those black T-shirts with the simple white font with something kind of nasty written on it. Uh huh. And you know, of course, the school authorities were like, "You can't wear that. You have to, you know, wear something else." And he took it off. He had another one on under it, and he had like four layers of offensive. Lee messaged shirts, which I appreciated his effort. I even back then I was like, "Ooh, I don't know, man, that's kind of gross." But at a certain point, you have to appreciate the fact that he really committed to that bit. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this is who I am. I am a big Johnson's T-shirt wearer, <laughs> yep. who is just really committed to co-ed naked sports. Uh huh. Yeah, I just feel like there's no room for a simple. I'm crabby without my coffee, you know? Mm-hmm. Little like crab holding a cup of coffee or something. Yeah, that's a good t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to all be like, Bigfoot stole my weed, so I shot him in the dick. It's messed up, man. Yeah, I'm sorry that you, <laughs> you experienced that on your trip. That's okay. It's just the state of the world these days, I guess. Ugh. Anyway... You want to talk about a comic book? Sure. <laughs> All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Um, I liked some of the artwork pretty good. 
I was uh, intrigued by those robot dogs. I can't remember if they predate Shredder's robotic critters from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. No, because those were in, I think, the very first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Mousers. Yeah, these kind of reminded me of like the dog version of that. Yeah, I can see that. And yeah, the art was interesting. It is Michael Collins again, who is the same artist who drew the annual that Danny Chase premiered in. And I think this issue was supposed to come pretty soon after that. I think this issue was initially supposed to come out as Danny Chase's debut into the main series. So this was supposed to be issue 40 instead of issue 44. But Michael Collins is an English artist, which plays into some stuff that comes up later. And there were some just like overseas production issues and it got hung up and it ended up being put out a little bit later than they had initially intended, Hmm. which is fine. It honestly seems, though, like, I don't know, the series has kind of been treading water for the past eight or so issues. Yeah, uh, I was checking out the credits and I don't know if the previous ones have been written this way but it said marv wolfman plot consultant and additional dialogue so is that like an editor kind of but barbara randall's the editor yeah barbara randall's the editor i think basically wolfman either had a chat with the writers of this because it's credited to rjm lafacere which is the name that the couple randy lafacere and her husband jean-marc lafacere wrote under when they were collaborating on a title. So I think maybe Wolfman had a chat with them and then gave it a once-over when it was done and did some, like, joke punch-up, maybe. Yeah, I was gonna say, he must have been like, hey, Beast Boy hasn't said anything super creepy yet. I'll fix that. No problem. Yeah, I think it was probably something along those lines. It, it is odd, though. Most of the issues have not been done that way. I think Wolfman's written almost all of these issues that we've covered hmm, okay. with the exception of the Roy Thomas one. And I think that was just the infinity ink half of the infinity ink teen Titans crossover. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I think you have to go back to the two or three Paul Levitt's scripted issues to get to one that wasn't written by Marv Wolfman. It is different in tone though. It I think matches in some ways a lot of the tone of the annual number three where uh, Danny Chase debuted, but I think it kind of made more sense in an annual. It doesn't really, to me at least, fit in the regular series. It seems a little bit out of place. Some of the tone and like the madcap antics and that it's kind of a spy parody, it seems like in a lot of ways. There was some of it that I liked, but some of it just didn't really work for me. Like, it's consistent with Godiva's character that she would adopt a casual, cartoonish, almost indifference to the stakes of the plot, but it felt like all of the characters were kind of adopting that tone in a way that seemed kind of off. To me, it sort of felt like it was targeted at, like, a, a younger audience, at least the part where Danny Chase was like, I have awesome spy parents, and my awesome spy grandpa is the coolest, and we're going to go have, like, a super spy caper together and save the day. Yeah, which I think was something that we both also felt about that third annual. But that kind of tone shift seems more appropriate for, like, a one-off comic like that. It is odd. It really seems like since they wrapped up the Brother Blood story, there was the initial 
wildebeest storyline, which that seemed like it was starting to go somewhere. And since then, it's just been kind of a series of one-off issues. When Wildebeest came back, it had the setup as though it was going to be a longer arc, but then they kind of double-backed and just wrapped that all up neatly and undid all of the work of the first issue right after that. So it's been a while since it seems like this series has really gained any traction in terms of going somewhere. And I'd like that to maybe change. I like some of the one-off issues better than others, but I'm ready to get some movement happening, you know? Yeah, totally. And with the Wildebeest thing also, I don't know, I, I felt like it was kind of an anticlimactic end to that little arc. Yeah, I think the first arc had more of a satisfying conclusion, but when they brought him back and then had it be like, I'm going to have a big complicated plan and it's so complicated that it doesn't make any difference goodbye mm -hmm. yeah that was uh sucky yeah that's a that's a word for it that being said there was some fun spy stuff going on in here it opens in a sequence that makes it pretty clear that at least part of the book is going to be a nod to the james bond franchise in terms of the action oh man yeah, that opening page is some of my favorite stuff in this whole comic book. I, I can't remember which Bond movie starts on the slopes like that. But um, yeah, it totally reminded me like being a kid and watching those movies and being really into it. Yeah, and it's interesting that you brought up that it seems like it is written for a younger audience with the focus on Danny Chase, because I think you're right. But it also made me realize a lot of stuff that was fine for kids to watch was like, pretty fucked up <laughs> like have you seen any james bond movies recently like those aren't for kids or i mean they are but they shouldn't be no i haven't i haven't recently i have some memories of some lines from them and i kind of like ooh, <laughs> that probably wasn't good for me yeah but this issue is kind of the same thing in a lot of ways a lot of people die in this issue including the protagonist spy and he gets like half a panel of people being sad that he's dead before danny pipes up with nah it's fine that he's died forget it i got his information and everybody's like cool let's party that's like dude a man just died yeah i know that was super abrupt and it's not the first time we've seen danny take that cavalier attitude towards people dying we saw he did that with gizmo too and to a certain extent, when it looked like Beast Boy was maybe going to die from his gunshot, which got completely forgotten about. I guess having someone with magical nonsense healing powers kind of undercuts the severity of moments like that, or at least has the potential to. But it makes you realize that, yeah, I guess growing up in an environment without having a real childhood, always since you were very, very young, being on these super spy adventures where people die regularly. It could make a kid into kind of a sociopath, and maybe that is what is happening with Danny Chase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the highlights of this issue is that I have a new abbreviation in my notes to refer to him, which is uh, DFC, which is short for something that you said in the text message of uh, Danny fucking Chase. Yeah, that is how I pretty much think of him exclusively now, is Danny fucking Chase. It's tough because honestly, like that idea of what does growing up in an environment do to a kid's psychology could actually be kind of interesting to explore. 
I don't think the book is going to, but it makes almost some nods in that direction of the things that it could do. Like when you see the juxtaposition of the difference between Beast Boy growing up in a really similar situation to Danny Chase with Doom Patrol instead of the Titans when he was a younger kid, but his parents were actually dead, and like the trauma that that visited, it makes his relationship to Danny Chase like there could be more poignancy to it. But I don't think they're going to do anything with that. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, like I said, what it does to a kid to grow up without a childhood and to be put in these high-stakes life-or-death situations since the time when you're seven, there could be a really interesting exploration of that. And it nods that it could do that, but I don't think that's going to get brought up anymore either. Yeah, I mean, he could break bad. Talk about creepy villains. Oh, totally. Also, we've talked about the James Bond movies, and it took me a while to catch this, but I think his grandpa is supposed to be Sean Connery. (laughs) I was wondering... It's like, why does this guy look oddly familiar? You think Sean Connery? I think this is around when, like, The Untouchables came out. This is the year before the third Indiana Jones movie came out, where he plays Dr. Jones. So I think that, yes, that is a nod to Sean Connery. He had already played an aging James Bond about four years before this in Never Say Never Again. And this is very much what Sean Connery looked like in the late 80s. So yeah, I think that that is having some fun with that character, which is weird because previously it had established that Danny's grandfather was a scientist who worked on the Manhattan Project. And he does say like, oh yeah, I helped design these doggy Mausers or whatever. But mostly I was a spy. Yeah, that's... Super Scientist was like a side hustle. Right, right. In this economy, you really need to have a a backup career. I'm trying to channel Sean Connery's accent. Don't be fooled by the pleasant surroundings. There you go. Okay. Don't be fooled by the rock slut I've got. I'm still, I'm still Bond. James Bond. (laughs) Oh my gosh. We had hints earlier that Adrian Chase, world's worst district attorney piece of shit, vigilante Adrian Chase, Mm -hmm. is Danny's uncle, which would mean that that would be grandpa's son. And the fact that nobody seems to give a shit in this book about the fact that he has suicided fairly recently, I think would be in keeping with that kind of cavalier attitude towards life that this spy family seems to have developed. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like their defense mechanism against uh, feelings. Mm-hmm. I would have signed up for government spy work if I knew I got to go live in such a dope retirement home. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It seems like there's an intent to have more nods to super spy stuff. Like, the opening sequence is definitely a, a James Bond homage. And I was wondering if the retirement community was going to be something more along the lines of The Prisoner. And I was kind of hoping for that because that's all I know about retirement communities for spies. But what they end up with is a pretty fun high-tech facility. Mm-hmm. But it is in North Dakota. Yeah, it's part of the defense. Mm. One of the other things that I think is supposed to be a nod to like, spy fiction or things like that on page six the two young men who are walking away from the titans 
in the lower corner of the page. Yeah, I was going to ask you about why why is Beast Boy doing such a violent double take? Is it he's freaked out by that dude's plaid jacket or what? I think maybe those are supposed to be the Hardy Boys. I was just going to ask you, <laughs> wait a minute. One's got blonde hair, one doesn't. That must be the Hardy Boys. Who else could it be? And that's why Beast Boys is like, oh my god, it's... Shit, what are their names? Frank and Joe. Frank and Joe. I think so. I mean, the other potential reference would be the man from Uncle, so maybe it's that, but these guys look younger. So, yeah, I think he's doing a double take being like, where's Chet, their husky pal? Yeah, and also, why are they at the retirement home? Because by the late 80s, there were no more Hardy Boys novels being published. Oh, that's Briefly, true. maybe. Yeah, they're chronologically very old. <laughs> exactly. And so that's another potential reason he's doing a double take. Man, on our trip, Lisa and I, when we were driving, started reading aloud each other from a uh, Tom Swift book. You ever read any of those? Uh, I don't think so. It's written almost exactly like a Hardy Boys book. And I think the same publishing company. But he's a super inventor, I think, in the future. And so the one we were reading was Tom Swift and his Trifibius Atomic Car. Hmm. Pretty great. And like the Hardy Boys, every character is identified immediately by their hair color. Mm -hmm. And so there was one character where it took like three pages before we got a hair color for him or the fact that he was husky. We <laughs> ended up getting both because <laughs> it was Bud. He was the Chet stand-in. Mm -hmm. But for those three pages, it was honestly unnerving. It was like, who is this cipher? We don't know what color hair he has. He could be anybody. Damn it. Dixon. I, hmm, I wonder if that was. Because uh, uh, w, Frank W. Dixon was a pen name, right? Right. I think they were like written in some kind of like a factory farm situation. Because hmm. those and the Trixie Belden and the Nancy Drew are all written in such identical style where it's just like, any type of speech is denoted by an adverb describing it, and every character is described by their hair color and usually either a slim or a husky mm -hmm. or an athletic. Heck of a formula, man. I, I, I tore through those books when I was a kid. Honestly, I never really got into them. Lisa and I started reading them aloud to each other when we're driving on long trips and kind of, you know, having fun with them. But that is the only context I really experienced them. I, my sister loved the Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden ones, and I just could not get into the Hardy Boys. Hmm. I guess I just have too much sympathy for smugglers. Yeah, there's a lot of smuggler bashing in the, that series. Which seems especially cruel when you take into account what a high percentage of them had the blues, which, as Glenn Fry told us, was incurable. In terms of other fun cameos we get, in addition to potentially the Hardy Boys, we also have Sir Cyril Sheldrake, Earl of Wardenshire. Did you have any familiarity with that character? I just thought he was John Waters for a minute, but no. Not everybody with a mustache is John Waters, Corey. Well, this, that kind of mustache. Mm. His is thicker than a pencil. He's got like a marker-thin mustache. <laughs> there you go, splitting hairs again. So, a couple things about Sir Cyril. First of all, 
He's a character who's been in DC Comics for quite some time. He was inspired by the Batman to form his own crime-fighting duo with a young protege, and they were the Knight and Squire. And they ended up being part of a league of international Batman aficionados <laughs> that would uh, all hang out. I think they were called the Club of Heroes. And so, like, there was the Musketeer and the Legionnaire that were the French version. There was El Gaucho, I believe it was, who was the Argentinian Batman. There was Man of Bats and Red Raven, who were the Native American Batman. And they were all just really obvious Batman knockoffs, and they all hung out together because they were all inspired by Batman. Wow. And he was the first of them, Sir Cyril. He first showed up in 1950. That's a badass name. I love it when gangs call themselves clubs. Yeah, it's pretty good. Because then they also get to say it's not a gang, it's a club. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes you think, oh, it is a gang. Mm-hmm. Side note, in the art on page 10, which is, I think, like the second panel where we see Sir Cyril, do you see the way that Beast Boy's face is drawn? He's standing behind Danny Chase, who's exclaiming, look at all that, look at that hardware. Oh. <laughs> he looks like he's, like, behind him going, like, you know, making fun of him. He's making a Jay Leno expression in that one. Right? <laughs> he looks like a little green Jay Leno with slightly less of a chin. Yeah, it's weird. Well, maybe he's uh, less than enthused about this Sir Cyril guy because Cyril, A, doesn't wear enough denim, two, has a substandard classic car collection, and three, is a fucking phony. What? You know why? Why? Because if he is the Earl of Wardenshire, then he couldn't be Sir Cyril, because in England, you can't be knighted if you are born into nobility. Hereditary nobility can't be knighted. So, uh, Sir Cyril's trying to put on airs to impress us, us American rubes, and that's not cool. Oh, jeez. So uh, an Earl can never be a, a Sir. I don't think so. I didn't really look into it all that much. I just saw a little blurb that said that uh, hereditary nobility can't be knighted. Oh, far out. Sir Cyril here is full of shit. Could be, could be. Maybe George Harrison, like, passed it to him. Well, George Harrison would still be using it at this point. Oh. He's like, boy, I really like Batman. <laughs> he is fab. So, hey, just a point of order so I understand in the timeline here the dude skiing away from those german speaking guys is the cuckoo right yeah okay and the cuckoo is a different guy than the catalyst who's the bad guy who's working with godiva and dr cornelius krieg yeah which was confusing to me, because I thought they were the same guy at first. Yeah, okay. I was confused about that, too. The Catalyst guy, man, that's pretty badass, though. Like, his spy power is just like, I palm your face and you die. <laughs> it looks like, yeah, it's like he puts a pie in somebody's face, but with no pie. Invisible pie of death. Invisible death pie is a hell of a spy power. Ooh. And yeah... He, he just, yeah, he face palms the guy. It's it's like he's got, like, a Killer Kowalski's claw. And he just, like, puts the claw <laughs> on his face. And then it's just like, the guy's like, oh, fuck. Well, guess I'm dead. Uh, 
you to say the killer Kowalski voice. Um, you just bought yourself an early retirement, chump. That's what he says when he face palms the guy to death. I don't have a good killer Kowalski voice. Oh, I really only know killer Kowalski as a reference my dad would make when we were playing when I was little and he would do a claw hold on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I'm familiar with that same antic. Hey guys, this is Editor Hub here in the future. I uh, just wanted to point out, it turns out the Catalyst guy is another minor Blue Beetle villain, and he can make chemicals secrete from his palm. So, that's probably what's going on there. I still think Invisible Pie Hand is a better power, though. Speaking of the Catalyst and his boss, there is that weird moment where Dr. Cornelius shows up, and Godiva's like, oh shit, I need to put on my serious face. Enough of this wacky madcapping about, I'll buckle down and do my assassination job. We hadn't really seen any indications before that that was something that Godiva was capable of or interested in. It's odd to see her cowed by somebody. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out also. And in that panel, when he's looking all stern and she gets all serious, there's little sparkly things all around her head that indicate some sort of psychic activity. Does he have like her mind controlling power, but he's just better at it or something? I was honestly curious throughout the issue what those little sparkles around her head meant. Because at first I thought it was her using her psychic powers, but I don't think she was using them on Dr. Cornelius. So I don't think that's what they are. I was honestly wondering if it's just like, like when somebody's drunk, you see little bubbles popping near their face. I wonder if it's just supposed to be that those are always around her head, denoting some kind of a mental imbalance or something. Well, no, I kind of I kind of meant it the other way. Like the sparkly things are showing up like like you said not that she's drunk, but as an indication that she's being mind controlled because on a following page when she makes that guy sit like a dog, he's got those little sparklies around his head when she's like brain zapping him. Yeah, and when she's doing it to the lady on page 13, they're just floating around her head. I think sometimes they are used to show that she's using her mind control powers, but sometimes they're just around her head for reasons that I'm not sure of. I wonder if maybe there was just a miscommunication with the art team about when they should and shouldn't be used. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of always there, which was part of what made me wonder if they were just supposed to show that she was kind of loopy, you know? Mm -hmm. Here's what I was thinking was odd about her relationship with Dr. Cornelius. His name is Dr. Cornelius Krieg, but he just goes by Dr. Cornelius, which makes me wonder if he's some kind of a celebrity doctor, which is why he goes by doctor and then his first name, mm. like Dr. Ruth. Mm -hmm. And given Godiva's obsession with celebrity, maybe she is cowed not by how evil he is and that he might torture her or something, but by the fact that he's more famous than she is. And so she's just like, oh, I better suck up to this guy because he's famous and that's the only thing that I care about. Mm. So maybe he is a world-renowned, famous celebrity sexologist. <laughs> gross. He's so gross looking. But uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can really only think of Dr. Ruth when I think of doctors who go by doctor and then their first name. Dr. Uh, Phil. Is he a sexologist? Is he a doctor? 
I don't think he's either of those things. <laughs> We're talking a real Sir Cyril situation here. Who's uh, Dr. Dean Ornish. So. But he doesn't just go by Dr. Dean. No. He goes but... by Dr. Dean Ornish. Yeah. Well, like Dr. Cornelius Creek. Yeah, but he just goes by Dr. Cornelius. Oh, does he? Yeah. I, I don't know. That's a pretty cool sound. It's like a rap name. Wasn't one of the Planet of the Apes people named Dr. Cornelius? There was definitely a Cornelius. I, I don't know if he, he might not have been a doctor. I mean, he was a doctor. He might not have gone by doctor. He probably didn't. He was like, I don't need that. Yeah, I don't want to seem like that asshole Dr. Zayas. Yeah. I'm no sexologist. Ooh, was Dr. Zayas a sexologist? Probably. We may never know. Oh, boy. The mysteries of the Planet of the Apes. Will they always be unsolved? Hey, Editor Hub here again. Ah, uh, yeah, so it turns out Dr. Cornelius's name is Dr. Klaus Cornelius, and he has a company called Cornelius Krieg. So he might not be a sexologist. He does get referred to in this issue as Cornelius Krieg, but I think that's a mistake. So, you know, sorry to the one Blue Beetle fan who's yelling at his computer or phone right now. We do also learn, we had speculated when we covered the third annual where Danny and Godiva made their debut, about what the deal was with Sir Alex Richards. He had showed up at the end of that issue and was introduced as Godiva's new acting teacher, and that seemed like it was supposed to be some kind of a joke. We had speculated whether he was a recurring character, if he was someone we were supposed to remember, and uh, I guess we get our answer here, kind of. He apparently wasn't that important, because by this issue, Godiva has killed him in a very gruesome fashion, <laughs> where she hangs him from a ham hook in a ham factory and stuffs him full of cheese. I, I had to put it down and think about that for a minute after I read that. Just the amount of effort. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm no doctor, but I imagine stuffing a, like, assuming dead body full of cheese is a lot of work. I hope it was a dead body. I think that's how she killed him. That's a weird thing to do. Like, that's a weird thing to do after <laughs> the guy's dead. But it's also a weird way to kill a guy. There's no uh, not weird angle to it. Honestly, the thing that makes it weirder for me is that she did that without having a decent pun about it in mind. Because it seems like it's building up to that. But then the pun that she has for it is, This deserves a chapter in my ever popular memoirs. I think I'll call it Cheese Hamlet. Mm -hmm. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? It's, I guess it's a Shakespeare reference because it says Hamlet. Okay, so he's a Shakespearean actor. Oh, yeah, no, that's it. You got it. Hit the nail on the head, friend. But is it supposed to be on cheese omelet? Oh, don't try and make it too clever. But I think it's terrible to kill a guy and not even have a decent pun in mind. Like, well, she's not a kind person. I know, but or a good he, pun maker. She could have had somebody else work on it. She has a whole staff. Like somebody could have done punch up on that and be like, "How about a uh, Hamlet and cheese?" 
or actor Cordon Bleu because he's uh, in a ham factory and stuffed with cheese. I mean, there's something she could do with that. Mm. Yeah. All right. I want to stuff this guy full of cheese. He's an actor. Everybody, give me your joke submissions. I'm going to kill you all, except for the person with the best suggestion. Yeah, she really needed to find herself a, a, a punisher. Get it? I am going to very begrudgingly give that a rim shot, Corey. <laughs> you made me say get it. That was, <laughs> that was an uncomfortable <laughs> pause. You usually get a good groan right after. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. It was a terrible. It wasn't that the pun was so terrible. I mean, it was terrible, but, you know, a regular amount of pun terrible. It's just that, frankly, the Punisher, just as a character, has been ruined for me by seeing his logo on a lot of flags in places where I wish I hadn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, well, maybe it's some small relief to think of just all he actually does is make puns. Yeah, that would be nice. Speaking of jokes that didn't quite land, it took me a while to puzzle out when Godiva is walking through the room and her minions are killing all of the people. She says, How tedious, another scene of mindless violence. Still, if it gets me an R. Did you catch that right away? I just sort of assumed it meant like she was filming everything and she wanted an R rating. Yeah, I think I just missed that because I, I, I'm not sure exactly why. I, I was like, wait, like in a cheerleader situation, give me an R? <laughs> or like, I need a W, like she needs a win, but it's an R? And I was thinking about it way too hard before I did finally get to the like, oh, right. But why would you want your thing to have an R rating? Oh, this keeps coming up. You just gotta let it wash over you. Yeah, but... If I keep doing that, I'm just going to drown in it, Corey. <laughs> I think it might actually have been, and this actually plays later into a potential timestamp. I think this came out in like 88. And at that point, a PG-13 rating was new enough that I think it was still kind of a neither fish nor fowl thing. And wasn't necessarily great for your box office to have a PG-13 as a rating. I think, like, if you look at most of the blockbusters from that era, they were rated either G, PG, or R. And so maybe she did want to have it bumped up to an R, because PG-13 is uh, kind of a no-man's land. Whereas now, everybody wants their movie to be PG-13. Like, all of the blockbusters are PG-13, including a lot of horror movies, which is kind of weird. It is such a bizarre idea to me to put that level of granularity on what's acceptable. Or an age range. Yeah, especially because it really does seem like for the most part, it's like, okay, so like a lot of people can die. Really, an unlimited amount of people can die. You can say fuck twice, but not three times, and definitely no nipples. Right, that's the main thing. It's just like, oh shit, I'm sorry. Uh, after that dude got disemboweled there, uh, there was a boob. There was a nip slip. Nope. So, rated R. So dumb. Yeah. You know, there's a ton of other stuff to talk about, but I think most of it's going to come up in the minutia. Was there anything you wanted to bring up before we move into the minutia? The only other thing that really puzzled me, and, and maybe I just missed it as a plot point. So they did a road trip to North Dakota, mm -hmm. and then they flew home from a commercial airport 
in their T-Jet. Yeah. I think at that point their cover's blown, maybe. Like, the bad guys already know their location. I hadn't even thought about that. They flew home from a commercial... Huh. Maybe they had Addie Kane, like Jericho's mom, come pick them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you see him like hanging out by the airport, co- the British Airways Club, and the airport coffee shop, and then uh, they fly off in the the T jet. Yeah, weird. Well, Corey, the thing is, you really got to let this sort of thing just wash over you. <laughs> yeah, do as I say, not as I do. Did you notice just, but incidentally, in that scene when they're saying goodbye at the airport, there is a googly-eyed donkey between two men wearing hawaiian shirts in the foreground there certainly is man north dakota is a weird place i guess that's the takeaway (laughs) i'll go back to letting it wash over me okay all right rick would you sing us into the minutia we got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what category do you feel like starting off with? Let's talk about clothes. All right. Sartorially speaking, there's rather a lot of them, but uh, which fashion choices did you want to comment on? Man, the first one that really struck me was in the road trip scene, like when they're in the van headed out to North Dakota sitting there. Starfire's got her usual, you know, large round sunglasses on. And I cannot tell if it's the way that the panel's drawn or what's going on, but it's either they look like those glasses with the slit in them, like that the guy from the Lords of Death and Big Trouble in Little China had. Mm Mm-hmm. Or she's just, like, super high. (laughs) It's weird. You can see her eyeballs through the glasses. And I was wondering if there was, again, maybe a miscommunication with the art team. And they thought those were, like, her disguise glasses that, like, Clark Kent style. And she was just wearing big round glasses like Danny Chase's and had to squint to see through them. I noticed that, too. It was a weird minor detail. but. Yeah, it was tough to tell what was going on with those. Before we get to Godiva, which is where I think a lot of the fashion is going to concentrate, I wanted to definitely bring up the, I guess, spy support staff outfits. The red sweaters with leather arm patches that the British Secret Service seems to be very fond of in this. Did those strike you as odd? Um, no. I guess they kind of reminded me of, what do you call those things, commando sweaters? Yeah, and I think that was probably the intent, but I think maybe the colorist didn't get the memo, because the colors are way off for those, but they are structured as though they are like British commando sweaters. Mm -hmm. But they would not normally, I think, be bright red with leather elbow patches. I think those patches would normally be a a slightly darker color of the olive green that they would be, or black on black. So I think, yeah, they were going for the British commando sweaters, but I think Adrienne Roy probably saw them and wasn't maybe familiar with those and was just like, oh, British guys with uh, elbow patches. I guess they're supposed to be like clubby, chummy guys, you know? Mm -hmm. Like smoking pipes, having leather elbow patches. It's kind of a professorial look almost. Yeah, and I guess the fact that there's uh, lapels coming out of the sweater made it really seem like they're not commando sweaters. Right. 
Was there anything other than Godiva that you wanted to talk about in terms of fashion? The only other thing I had was also a spy garment, and it was Cuckoo's jacket, or vest and jacket. I'm not sure if they're connected or not. It's a Mm -hmm. quilted, what do you call those things? Like a hunting vest, maybe? Yeah, I think it's supposed to be like a hunting vest, more so than a Back to the Future vest. But when I see any kind of a puffy quilted vest, I first think Marty McFly. Mm-hmm. And it did seem odd that he was wearing that with his commando sweater. Mm-hmm. And his is like a, I don't know, a burnt sienna to the bright red of the uh, rest of the guys. Mm-hmm. It's like a rank thing. Maybe they have color coded. Oh, like on Star Trek. Yeah, that would actually make sense and would also explain why the guys with the red sweaters don't fare quite so well. Now for Godiva's outfit, she has a couple of different ones. I think the more striking of the two is when we first see her, she is wearing a hot pink and yellow mini kilt with that little fur pouch in front of it. I think it's called a sporan, something like that. I've never actually heard it pronounced. Mm -hmm. It is a very striking look. She also still has her signature earrings that have the stylized G for Godiva that doesn't actually look like a G. Mm -hmm. She is wearing elbow-length hot pink gloves with big gold bracelets over it. And it is a striking look, and I think a really successful look. Yep, I had that one noted as well. Later on, she changes to her more traditional outfit, more akin to her regular uniform, which is... A fairly tight hot pink jumpsuit that is unbuttoned pretty low. But the striking thing to me is her boots. She has these thigh-high stiletto boots that have buccaneer cuffs on them. But one of the cuffs is down and one of them is up. And it uh, creates an asymmetrical look that is uh, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that uh, asymmetry as well that's carried forward in some of the other panels it is although it does alternate which boot she is wearing cuffed and which one she is having uncuffed Mm -hmm. also her minions they have that stylized not quite g on their chest and other than that they are wearing pink moon boots and hot pink like speed skater unitards with pink hoods and kind of dick like (laughs) they're very pink Mm -hmm. well and the really thick boots could be kind of like balls you know (laughs) okay it just you know she committed to a theme with her troopers and good for her Corey let's have a battle of the band name In last week's Battle of the Band Names, we crowned yet another new champion. We saw the Devout Cowards be defeated after only one week of championship by an intelligent-looking girl, the 90s (laughs) alt-rock feminist (laughs) supergroup. So, this week, who do you want to put up against an intelligent-looking girl, the... 90s feminist indie rock supergroup consisting of Jewel and Sarah McLaughlin and Alanis Morissette and Ani DeFranco. Uh, I think we had established that Lisa Loeb and 
I forget who else, uh, maybe Natalie and Bruglia were like affiliated, like they were the killer bees or grave diggers to sure. <laughs> unintelligent looking girls, Wu Tang, but uh, they aren't officially part of the group. So they don't really enter into the equation, luckily for us. Huh. Uh, what band names were you able to find in this issue that uh, you want to pit against? Unintelligent looking girl. Oh, shit, man. I, I quit. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had before Sir Alex Richards as a possible musician's name, but I, I'm not going to put that up against uh, an intelligent looking girl. Yeah, I have some options. I don't think they're great. I think there are some okay ones. I had Perimeter 5. I think that sounds like kind of, uh, I don't know, like mid-90s alternative rock. It's like uh, Maroon 5. I guess, but, you know, just on the outskirts. <laughs> yeah, like we're not quite that pop forward, but we do have, you know. Yeah, they're, they're pop propinquitous. Oh. So I think that's okay, but not great. What do you have? Well... Yeah, maybe we'll t- we'll take a different attack against this supergroup with um gosh, I don't know. The uh, some kind of metal, I'm not sure which, but abominably gruesome. Hmm. I feel like they have to be kind of like popier. Like they could be pop metal. Hmm. I don't know. Can you think of any like uh, cute poppy metal? Uh the only thing with that that comes to mind is baby metal, a Japanese band. Yeah, I can see them being like a Japanese kawaii metal band. Mm-hmm. Abominably gruesome. That's not bad. Either that or it's like one of those, maybe bluegrass isn't the right word for it, but like one of those old-timey bands, but with a name that is on purpose not right. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Another possible choice, The Mechanical Beasts. Hmm. That's good. It's okay. I think my favorite one that I found was The Birds in the Bush. (laughs) I just think that sounds kind of like, oh, you know what they are? Hmm. They're like the Capitol Steps, but psychedelic (laughs) folk rock version of the Capitol Steps. (laughs) Or like Mark (laughs) Russell. (laughs) They do uh, political parody songs, but they're a uh, psychedelic folk band. Oh my god, our parents love them so much. They have all of their albums. They think they're hilarious. Uh, when your dad's had a little bit too much to drink, he definitely gets out this album and is just like, ah, you guys are going to love this. Well, that's interesting because they may be seen on tour with uh, the Cuckoo Conspiracy. Ooh. Yeah, I think the Cuckoo Conspiracy is a pretty decent name for like a kind of garage punk psychedelic group Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep kind of stooges but uh a little more lsd a little less punk rock yes stooges by way of the electric prunes Mm. i think of those i i I mean you know they're playing to a specific demographic but i think i kind of want to go with the psychedelic folk capital steps mark russell type music of the birds in the bush you okay with that go for it all right i will post that poll on twitter and just to be clear when i say they sound like mark russell i mean the piano playing guy on pbs not the comic book writer every issue of a teen titans comic has a beast boy the worst of teen titans and an aqualad 
the greatest of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who was your Beast Boy? Well, not to be too on the nose about it, but uh, starting with Beast Boy, I, I don't know, I felt like performance-wise, you know, the main Titans core was pretty even. So I, for just not being able to make it through a comic book without being a total creep or creeping on uh, on Miss or Mrs. Dix, I, <laughs> I had Beast Boy. Yeah, I think that's a fair choice. I went with a guy who I thought was being creepy in a different way. I went with Jericho for using his creepy-ass powers to invade his ally Cuckoo's body for no apparent reason. Like, without consent, it freaked the guy out, and it didn't serve any purpose. Yeah, I guess he was just like, man, I, I really hate it when Raven teleports me. That's creepy as hell. I'm going to go hide inside this guy. Yeah, it just seemed like a dick move, and really for no reason. So, yeah, I gave the nod to Jericho as my beast boy. Conversely, for my Aqualad, I have written down... Well, shit, I guess it's Danny fucking Chase again. <laughs> That's funny because mine says DFC, I guess. Yeah, I don't like it, but they keep making him save the day. He and his grandpa, I mean, I guess his grandpa, if he were eligible, I would go with Ursat's Sean Connery over Ursat's cousin Oliver every day of the week. But uh, he's not, so... It's Danny Chase. He and his grandpa saved the day. Yep, him and his uh, his sweet, sweet TK. Yeah. Did you catch that? I don't feel like you should abbreviate your own superpower. Like, somebody else should do that. It's like giving yourself a nickname. Yeah. The only sweet TK that I appreciate is the guy who flew the helicopter for Magnum. There you go. Is that TK? That's TC. Oh. Yeah, you're right. It's TC. Still, heck of a pilot. <laughs> Way better than Danny Chase. And that's why Magnum P.I.'s friend TC is my Aqualad this week. I'll, I'll join you on that. Okay, I'll fill that in in the spreadsheet. Yeah, all right. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I think there were, were a few, but the, the one that really stood out to me was the big emphasis they put on a computer tape mm. which i mean granted is still a thing but uh it was definitely old school computer tape yeah i think we've already discussed both of mine i had an r rating being preferable to a pg-13 rating as a timestamp, and i had 80s sean connery being the stand-in for an aging super spy being my other timestamp. so I should know I'm the one who helped design them. That's uh, page 18. Yeah. You're the dog robot now, dog robot. <laughs> Not bad. No, I mean, very bad. <laughs> Just bad enough. This was not that long after Highlander came out. Mm. I just wanted to bring that up because of the frolicking. Was that in the first one or the second? That was in the first one, the quickening. Jeez, really? Feel the shtag. In the second one, he's a decapitated head. Floating around in space? Maybe? I really lost the thread of the second one real quick. I didn't think they got that weird until the third or fourth one. 
No, after you get rid of the Keurig, who is the guy who was the bad guy? God, makes terrible coffee. Exactly. <laughs> the Ker- Kurgan. Ah, oh, yeah, the Kurgan. Got those little pods. So wasteful. <laughs> so wasteful. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? This one was pretty tough. I had a toss-up between Beast Boy, Cyborg, and uh, Godiva. Mm. And Godiva, I feel like, is really the obvious choice just because she emotes so much in every panel, but it's, like, intentionally over the top. So I don't know if she's overacting, you know? It's just, mm. like, her character. I think I'm going to go with Beast Boy just for one panel on page 18, where it's after he turns into a bird and gets shot by one of those robot dogs. Yeah. And he's falling in a really dramatic way, and he's saying, can't stay up. Yeah, the combination of that and his unprovoked Jay Leno impression a few pages earlier, (laughs) I think makes him a pretty strong contender. I did still go with Godiva just because of the fact that we see that she is capable of turning it off when she is confronted by her idol, noted sexologist, Dr. Cornelius. Mm. She is able to tone down her over-emoting. That means that the rest of the time she is doing it intentionally, uh, which I feel is a very dramatic move on her part. So I did still give her the nod, but I think Beast Boy is a solid choice. Well, I think it's time we took this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to focus on today? Well, we already talked about it in passing, but when Catalyst Invisible pies that guy to death... He calls him a chump. Mm-hmm. That's classic. Chump is a great go-to. What's your favorite insult right now? Like, say you're driving, and you see somebody do something you disapprove of. What do you call them? Mm. From the safety of your own car, with the windows rolled up. So, yeah. I, uh, it's, I know you're not supposed to use the word crazy, like, mm-hmm. but calling somebody a crazy asshole... <laughs> Mm. like just when they just do something that's like just a like a dangerous thing like driving or whatever and they almost cause an accident that's that's for whatever reason those two words spring to my lips and i i yell them Mm. i go back and forth between dipshit i think dipshit is just really fun and fuck nut i use fuck nut a lot (laughs) also sometimes and just sometimes and i don't know when it's going to be but I will, I will sometimes just be like, you fucking dildo. <laughs> and for some reason, very satisfying to me. Not that I want to denigrate the hard work being done by the actual dildos out there. It's just a very satisfying syllable combination. Uh-huh. I cracked myself up the other day because I it was doing something. I was like gardening or something. I was mad. <laughs> I don't know, a weed or something. I said, ah, fuck not, no offense. Nice. And I was like, oh man, I just I just pulled a Ed and Gary. Oh boy. Those guys are definitely a couple of fuck nuts. No offense. <laughs> oh, there you go. 
But I don't think any of those particular insults get used in this book. So back to the text. There are actually a lot of insults being bandied around in this book. There is an exchange between Beast Boy and Danny Chase, I believe, when Danny Chase's parents show up. Danny Chase's dad is basically saying, hey, sorry, my kid's such a dipshit. But the way that he phrases that is, I know he can be, uh, rather headstrong at times. And Beast Boy says, I think a little bit lower and around the other side. So I think he's saying he can be ass strong. Yeah, so I had a note about that as this being another example of Beast Boy just not getting how jokes or humor really work. Or anatomy, frankly, because it's not like your head is on just one side. You know? Face strong? Is what head strong means? It just doesn't make any damn sense. No. But uh, Danny's retort is, Gar's my pal, Ma. You know how I always make friends with those less fortunate than us? When he was a kid, someone stole his brain, so they haven't been found since. I mean, that's, I mean, it's definitely an insult. But also, like, I always make friends with those less fortunate than myself. It's basically like, I once was nice to a poor. He didn't grant me a wish like I thought he would, but that's okay. Man, fuck you, Danny Chase. I don't need your charity. He didn't even need that first part. It just makes him so unlikable, like, well, I want to insult this guy, but I have to set it up in a way that my parents will think is cool. Yeah. Sure. So annoying. They had another exchange later on that I think Cyborg got in on, too, and that is during their road trip. Danny Chase says, somebody stuff an exhaust pipe in Logan. Gar says, knock it off, Chase. And I think it's Cyborg pipes in with, I'll do it, give me one, I'll do it, but that might be Danny Chase again. So there was that, and then Cyborg, when describing Godiva, says that she makes my diodes crawl. Which I guess is like saying makes my skin crawl, although it doesn't really make sense because I don't think his diodes are his skin. But I don't actually know what a diode is, so okay. Mm -hmm. Robot joke. Man, somebody needs to teach the Titans in general what anatomy is. They all seem pretty bad at it. Mm -hmm. Any other uh, insults you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I found that when Godiva was brain-controlling some of the henchmen, like, she referred to them in different ways as dogs, you know? It's like, oh, good boy, or good pet, or pet. Mm -hmm. It's like, ugh, man, so derisive. Yeah, I'm starting to think this Godiva mass murderer might be kind of a jerk. Mm -hmm. She called Starfire a buxom bunny in a mean way. That's not nice. Nope. Boo! I don't even want to eat her chocolate anymore. Hmm. Okay, I do. What was your favorite panel in this issue? We already talked about it a little bit, but on page five, when we see that super spy retirement home, mm -hmm. that, what do you call that? Like the, the way of drawing super futuristic stuff a few decades past, I, I get a kick out of it. It's cool. Yeah, it's got a Jetsons-like, like, retro-futurist look to it that's pretty fucking rad. That's a word. Retro-futurist. Plus, I'm just a sucker for any kind of, like, overview of a compound where you see how it's laid out. That's always just, like, it seems like a fun little Easter egg whenever you get one of those. Mm -hmm. I liked that a lot, too. 
one of my favorites in this issue is on page four, there is a close-up of Beast Boy as this totally fucking shroomed-out frog. <laughs> like, he's standing on the headrest behind Cyborg, and his eyeballs look so cracked out and giant. And it made me wonder, does Beast Boy often just turn into one of those frogs or toads that people lick to get high? And is that why the other Titans keep him around? <laughs> it could be. I mean, they seem like a pretty straight-laced bunch, but you never know. I just can't think of another reason to let Beast Boy hang around. And those eyeballs are just... He's definitely that kind of a frog right there. Yeah, it does look like it. So I liked that panel a lot. Most of this issue is drawn in a much more cartoony style than we are used to seeing. But there is a close-up of Sean Connery Grandpa on page six that is drawn super detailed and like looks like it is drawn from a reference photo. And it's a really cool panel that's just a close-up of uh, Grandpa Franklin Chase. Mm -hmm. And I like it a lot. Yep, that one is uh, well-rendered indeed. I think my favorite is probably the big spread on page 22 that I called free. The Titans Together one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I called that Titans Together. It is a very nice, we've seen it a lot of times of just like the Titans charging at essentially the camera, but it's a nice one. And again, Gar is for me kind of the MVP of this. He is such a ferocious cheetah in that panel mm -hmm. that he kind of creeps me out a little bit. And not in the way he normally creeps me out. <laughs> it's, it's funny because Robin, I mean, uh, Nightwing's face, he's drawn like he looks like an old man. Yeah, both in his face and in his posture. Uh -huh. He looks like he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, my back. Metamucil. Yes. He is saying his catchphrase, battle cry, Metamucil. But nevertheless, it is a very nicely drawn panel. Indeed. Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, relatively randomly ascribed at this point, 1989, and the month of our Lord, September, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot! Yeah, so on September 23rd, 1989, Aqualad invited all his pals, the Titans, over to the Dome in Atlantis for a all-they-could-eat seafood buffet and unlimited free sodas to celebrate. Wow. Yeah, the 100th anniversary of one of his favorite companies. Any guesses? Ooh, Aqualad's favorite companies. Um, Ocean Spray. Nope. So, uh, ah. like many kids of the 80s, he had become super obsessed with Super Mario Brothers and uh, wanted to learn all he could about it and the company that created it, Nintendo. And so it turns out that on the 23rd of 1989, the party that he invited everybody to was to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Nintendo Company LTD, hmm. which I know sounds strange because they feel like a contemporary game company. It is now a, a Japanese multinational headquartered in, in Tokyo, but it was founded in 1889 by this craftsman named uh, 
Fusichiro Yamaguchi as a Hanafuda playing card. Those are these are like uh, these Japanese cards that you play card games with. So basically, they played a bunch of Donkey Kong, played some Super Mario Brothers, and uh, drank lots of free sodas and ate a bunch of seafood to celebrate the hundred years of uh, Nintendo. Wow, that sounds like a pretty good time for Aqualad and his friends. Mm-hmm. So. That is one thing that Aqualad was up to in September of 1989. The other thing, well, he ended up watching a TV show that he had a little something to do with the creation of. Hmm. See, a few months earlier, Aqualad had been hanging out with his good friends, Stephen Bochco and David E. Kelly. Richard Kelly? Mr. Kelly. He had gotten to know them a while ago when uh, he had been a consultant for an episode of L.A. Law that was about <laughs> salmon malfeasance. <laughs> they had needed to really pick his brain about that. That episode never ended up airing. It was too controversial. Big Salmon really put the kibosh on that. But he had formed a close friendship with Stephen Bochco and Mr. Kelly at that point. And so he was pretty happy to see them again when they called him and asked him to hang out. And, you know, they they ended up uh, hanging out, having a big L.A. party. Aqualad and Beaky got a little bit torn up and uh, started shit-talking. They'd recently been to the Titan Tower and encountered our good friend Danny fucking Chase. And they started telling Steve and first-name-long-forgotten Kelly all about this. And they're just like, oh, man, this Danny fucking Chase kid. I mean, I get it. He's a very good telekinetic, but he's also a fucking super spy and has a photographic memory. I'm just it's too much with this kid. Fuck. Next thing you know, I'll find out he's a fully licensed medical professional. Wouldn't surprise me if I found out this 14 year old kid's a doctor. (laughs) And that got Stephen Bochco thinking. Hmm, 14-year-old doctor? Interesting. Which is why, when Steve called Aqualad up and was like, Hey, that idea you were telling me about? Turn on your TV right now. Aqualad turns on his shell vision and on September 19th, 1989, he sees the first episode of Doogie Howser, M.D., A show about a 14-year-old doctor that was inspired by Aqualad bitching about Danny fucking Chase. Dang. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in September of 1989. Wow. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this comic book. You are welcome. I had fun. Good. We'll be back next week to talk about the Defenders. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by writing us an email at ttwasteland at gmail.com, or we can be reached if you have some physical mail for us at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We've gotten some great mail from you guys recently, and we really appreciated it. Corey got a really nice hand-drawn birthday card. Corey, do you want to tell people about it? Yeah, a big shout-out to a friend of the show, Chris. Uh, I'm sorry if I get your last name messed up. Uh, Jarzombek? 
for sending me an awesome birthday card with a guy lifting a really heavy cake on account of all the candles. And I will definitely make use of that 20% off the adamantium chair coupon that you included if I have the opportunity. Wow, 20% off. That's like over a billion dollar savings. Love me some coupons. So yeah, thank you, Chris, for that that card. It was really heartwarming. And so, yeah, if, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can, we can be reached at our P.O. box. And if you can't find us there, we're probably up on the socials media somewhere. I took about a week off of it because I was going through the Redwoods, both in the uh, traditional sense and in the Amelia Bedelia sense, because they do have those Redwoods that you can drive a car through. And, you know, I took advantage of that. But, yeah, I was off the social media for a week, but... uh. I will be dipping my toe back into those evil, evil waters soon and look forward to seeing you up there. We'll post the Twitter poll this week and you can vote on that. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be there. We always have been. We always will be. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Gosh, I mean, I know it's still pretty hot out, but... I got a bunch of rhubarb, so maybe making a strawberry rhubarb pie. Mmm, the king of pies, in my opinion. It's pretty good. It's certainly better than an invisible death pie. Oh, yeah, any time. And it is not made out of steel. No. Nope. It's not the way I make them. No, sir, you make a mean strawberry rhubarb pie. Thank you. Maybe I'll be giving you a hand with that this week. Uh, actually, I don't want to get too close to the oven. I, I got a pretty bad sunburn on my legs right now because uh, I'm an idiot. I, I didn't wear sunscreen <laughs> on them when I, when I got in a kayak. Oh. Yeah, it, it hurts so much. Sunburns are awful. I am sorry to hear that. Yeah. Uh, it, it was coming back from a long camping trip and having my immediate thought be, Oh, gosh, a hot shower is going to feel so good. And then getting in it and being like, no, that doesn't feel good at all. It burns. It's not the best. So maybe I'll be inside your heart taking a nice cold shower. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you become a donor, you get access to all sorts of bonus material. There's a whole bunch of videos that I've made that are reviews of classic comic books. There is also the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. We are nearing ever so soon the end of our coverage of Steve Gerber's run of Howard the Duck and uh, are trying to figure out what we're going to hit up next. So if you've got suggestions, I'd love to hear them. But there's also just a ton of other bonus material that's up there. If you enjoyed hearing Megan Bob's appearance last week, uh, we did a bonus show for both our Patreon and their Patreon over at the Next Wrestling Fan, where we talked about the weird mashup corporate synergy piece of media that is Scooby-Doo and the WWE Superstars versus the Curse of the Speed Demon. That was a lot of fun, and you should definitely check that out. And also, you should check out uh, Garden Plots with Skeletor. That is the show that we write on together, uh, along with Marissa Bond, who is also a terrific writer. So, 
Yeah, those, those are some things you can do. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, Corey, what's a way people can do that? Oh, you could tell somebody to give the show a listen. You could leave a review. Oh, what might this review say? You could say that this was a very good podcast. Mm -hmm. I laughed. And if you like to laugh, you should give it a listen. Five stars. I think that's pretty good. I'm, I'm going to offer a slight punch up. If I learned anything at Flamingo Jim's t-shirt depot on the Oregon coast, it's that you got to be a little bit more acerbic with your reviews and your slogans. So, so how about this? I listened to tighten up the defense because if I didn't, then Bigfoot would have chugged a beer and punched me in the dick eight times. Five stars. What do you think? No, man. That's not very relatable. What? If somebody's worried that Bigfoot's going to chug a beer and punch him in the junk a bunch of times, they got, they got bigger fish to fry. Wouldn't you want to be distracted from that? Perhaps with a, with a warm-hearted, humorous podcast about comic books? No, no. I would want to leave whatever woods I was in, not wearing my earbuds. So I could pay attention to where that mean Bigfoot was and just get out of there. Okay, well, you can go with Corey's review. Well, hey, you know, whatever floats your boat. But I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't know. I think it'll make you laugh is better get people to listen to it message than it's better than getting punched in the junk by Bigfoot a bunch of times. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. How about, okay, how about, how about we split the difference? Uh, and we go with... Uh, I'm crabby if I don't listen to tighten up the defense. Five stars. Love it. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, guys. And until next week. Watch out for Bigfoot. And apparently octopuses. Who knew they liked to shotgun beers so much? That is weird. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>